I've got a question for you. I know that there may be some children in this morning, so I've um, got some pictures for you to look at. What do these four men have in common? Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, Nelson Mandela, and the Apostle Peter. Anybody know what these four men have in common? They're all on the screen in Charlotte Chapel at the moment. That's not the answer I'm looking for. Well, the answer is that they were all involved in destroying dividing walls or barriers that resulted in major reforms that either changed nations or societies. Michael Gorbachev um, is attributed through his reforms of glasnost and perestroika to having uh, introduced the demise of um, communism within the former Soviet Union. Uh, in Europe, the Berlin Wall was one of the most prominent physical symbols to be destroyed, having been built in 1961. Uh, the reforms that were brought in by the Communist Party and the, the East German government in 1989 meant that the Berlin Wall um, was able to come down. Joshua, the son of Nun, well, he's uh, responsible, or at least partly, along with God's people, for taking down the walls of Jericho. And uh, Jericho stood as a fortified city, barring God's people entry to the promised land. Nelson Mandela, well, the wall that he was involved in taking down was apartheid. Apartheid was a system of legalized racial segregation enforced by the National Party of South Africa um, between 1948 and 1994. And, you know, so strong was the feeling of hostility between black and whites in South Africa that even many Christians justified the apartheid in inequality. Even though that we know that people are of the same value to God, because all people are created in the image of God. And the Apostle Peter, well, he was responsible for bringing down a religious wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Well, it was actually Jesus who tore it down. Uh, Peter was simply the instrument through whom God demonstrated his will and his plan for salvation. Uh, Colin, in our call to worship this morning, read uh, these words from the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And it is this same cross that bridges not only the gap between God and man, but it also destroys all religious, 
socio-economic, political, and racial barriers between individuals and nations. In Christ, there is one nation. In Christ, there is one church. In Christ, there is one faith. A friend of mine, uh, some years ago, he actually was responsible for starting um, an organization here in Edinburgh that's now throughout the whole of Scotland called Asian Concern. Uh, he himself was, was from an Asian background. And I remember Subash saying to me one night, he says, Jesus isn't just for white people. Jesus is for all people. And that's the truth. The truth that we come to discover today is the, the, the truth that Peter, the apostle, had to discover. Now, someone has said that it's much easier to determine God's leading looking back than it is to discern it either in the present or predict where it will take us in the future. Now, assuming that that's a true statement, I believe that it can be applied to Peter's experience in relation to his dealings with Cornelius. Can you imagine how he must have felt as the Spirit leads him into this new venture, into this new experience of life that hitherto has been taboo to him? It's been a forbidden area. And yet he feels the Holy Spirit is drawing him uh, very clearly to go into the house of a Gentile. It was easier, definitely looking back on that scene for Peter, to know how God was leading than it could possibly have been for him to know how God was leading and what the results of that would be in the present or the future. Now Jesus had given the apostles and the church the promise that we've adopted as our verse for this year. Uh, Acts 1 and 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They'd be perfectly happy with that. Uh, in Judea, yeah, I guess they would cope with that as well. In Samaria, hmm, not sure about that one, Lord, but to the ends of the earth. Well, the apostles wouldn't have known just what the ends of the earth would look like when Jesus said that. Well, we've already studied how, because of localized persecution, the gospel flame has spread out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And we even saw how in the sovereign will and purposes of God, an Ethiopian court official, already a convert to Judaism, was subsequently converted to Christianity. He was baptized by Philip, and he then, uh, we presume, took the gospel back to Africa. There are some traditions that want to maintain that the Ethiopian Coptic church uh, goes as far back as, as the Ethiopian eunuch returning back to Africa with the gospel. But you know, there's one major obstacle facing the church yet here in Acts as the gospel flame spreads to the end of the earth. Namely, it's the deeply ingrained political and religious prejudices that have existed for centuries between the Jewish people and their Gentile neighbors. That prejudice is like a firebreak that potentially could have quenched the gospel flame right there in its tracks. But through a remarkable string of events, God orchestrates the circumstances of people's lives to ensure that his divine purposes are fulfilled. And so we come back to this theme, the spreading flame, and the subtopic for today is destroying the wall of division. And it really will help if you have your Bibles open at Acts 11, um, and I can say that is uh, page 1105 in the Pew Bible. A quote from his commentary on Acts by William Larkin. He asks these questions. What would convince a charismatic, 
that the cerebral theological discourses that pass for sermons in emotional orthodoxy can call people to genuine faith. And what would convince those in a formal tradition that the faith of those who have responded to emotionally charged preaching is authentic? He goes on to say how Peter convinced Jerusalem church members who had been prejudiced against uncircumcised Gentiles becomes a model for us as we seek to sort through claims to God's working with challenge, which challenge our biases. Simply by that, he's, he's getting us to think into the text of what we've got here in Acts 11. Can God only work in the ways that we have known him to work in our experience? Is the only people that, people can, uh, that, that sinners can get soundly saved, converted, and gone into discipleship is if they come forward at an, an appeal that's made in Charlotte Chapel? What about the gospel being presented in a completely different way from the way that we're used to hearing it? What about a church tradition that is completely juxtaposition in style and, and emphasis than ours? Can God work in these ways? Are you prejudiced? Am I prejudiced? The question that God's word will get to in a moment. Last Sunday uh, evening, our senior pastor, Peter Granger, preached a sermon covering uh, the preceding story in Acts chapter 10 on how God miraculously brought together a sincere seeker, Cornelius, and a prejudiced preacher, Peter, in one amazing defining moment. That was the title of his sermon. Now, if you haven't already heard that, can I encourage you to download the sermon via the chapel website or purchase a copy from the Tate Library. Actually, Ray, as I was thinking about uh, what we call the tape library, I thought maybe that should be the DVD library or the multimedia department now since we've moved on from tapes. But anyway, it's not my intention to go back over the lessons that, uh, that Peter drew out and applied from the encounter between the Apostle Peter and Cornelius. Our task this morning is to examine how Peter, the Apostle, and the church handled the aftermath of that encounter, and particularly how they responded to the new Gentile converts. Uh, I was sitting in my office uh, um, just around the corner from here uh, the week before last, and and Peter, our senior pastor, uh, came into my office um, with with some enthusiasm, I have to say. Uh, I I was busy and concentrating on something else, and he fired this question straight at me. He said, where did Philip go after the Ethiopian eunuch was converted? Well, he didn't come here. Uh, no, you know, it just caught me, it caught me on the hop. I said, um, um, uh, he went to Azotus, I said with confidence. No, where did he go to? No, he, he did go to Azotus. I think you'll find it in Acts. No, but where did he go after that? Uh, Peter, I really have no idea. Um, he says, he went to Caesarea. Oh, so he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew that. Now, at this point, I felt like the headmaster had caught me out. You know what I mean? And I said, uh, and, oh, he says, don't you see it? I said, I will in a minute, I guess. He said, well, it's just that you're preaching on that passage as I am. He says, it's quite remarkable that 
God doesn't use Philip, who's already in... Ah, I see where you're going with this. Philip, the evangelist, is already in Caesarea. But God, in his sovereign purposes, gets Peter to come from way far away into this place where he can have this dialogue and experience with um, Cornelius. You see, in God's mind, even though Philip's there on the ground, Peter's the right man for the job. It's to Peter that Jesus has entrusted the keys of the kingdom. And Philip, well, he's a Hellenistic Jew. Think of the difference if if he had come back from Caesarea to Jerusalem and explained that the Gentiles had received the gospel. Much better to get a man who's going to, when he brings his report back to Jerusalem, is going to have more kudos than Philip would have had, whose testimony is going to carry with it some more gravitas, as he explains. So Peter is chosen by God for this task. And so in verses 1 through 3, first of all, we have the Jewish accusation. News of what had taken place in Caesarea reached Jerusalem and the Jewish believers long before Peter did. Now, in the days before emails and text messages, the reports would probably have been, uh, had an element of that kind of Chinese whispers with them. You ever play that game, you know, when you were a child? When you, were a child you, you whisper something into someone's ear and they pass it on and the message changes all the way around the room and there's nothing like it was when it started off. Well, news reaches Jerusalem of what's been going on in Caesarea. Some of the early manuscripts, uh, later editions to the ones than than our Bible is translated directly from, uh, they expand verse 2 to indicate that Peter, uh, quoting these manuscripts, stayed a considerable amount of time in Caesarea and did a great deal of preaching throughout the regions. Now, whatever, uh, irrespective of how long he stays, uh, it seems that because of the news circulating in Jerusalem, Peter decides to return and to give a personal report on the whole incident. Notice again there in verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now, if you didn't really already know their reaction to this news, what do you think they ought to have done? The Gentiles have received The word of God. How should they have responded? Well, let me remind you of how heaven had responded. Because Jesus says in Luke 15 and verse 10, In the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Cornelius bows the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. God the Father pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon him and he becomes born from above, a child of God with all the inheritance that there is to be claimed and experienced in Christ and heaven goes, yes! And they get excited and they throw a party and they rejoice and they're delighted that even one sinner has come to saving faith. But as heaven was partying, notice the response of the earthly believers in verses 2 
and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Wow. You know, I can just feel the sadness of the emotion of that right now. Heaven is partying. God's people on earth are criticizing. You don't feel the pain in God's heart. See, that's the difference being someone who is really heavenly minded and someone who is stuck in earthly tradition. Luke uses this expression, circumcised believers, to identify those who had made this accusation against Peter. Now, since all Jewish men would have been circumcised, it appears to refer not to this physical condition of the Jews, but I think it is more likely to be an element in the Jerusalem church membership who are still holding strictly to the law of Moses. Now, before you judge them too harshly, Remember that they've had centuries of tradition, and they also have the written code in their Torah, that as the revealed word of God, i.e. the Old Testament, it strictly forbade them from eating certain animals or associating with Gentiles. God had said so in his word. Don't eat this. Don't go there. Don't associate with them. God had said this. Now even Peter had held this view until he received the vision of the sheet lowered down from heaven containing all sorts of animals that he would never have even considered eating. Uh, Peter will renege on his convictions and practice a little later on when in Antioch because of the pressure and influence of the circumcision party, uh, an action that will earn him a swift and timely public rebuke from the Apostle Paul. Paul records that incident for us in Galatians 2 and 12. He says, before certain men came from James, that is James the Lord's half-brother, who is now the leader in the Jerusalem church, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles, obviously following on the practice that he had discovered was okay when he met with Cornelius in Caesarea. But when they arrived, the people from the circumcision party, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to this group. Now, we learn something further of these people's zeal for the the law when we come to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. In Acts 15 and 5, uh, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Many of us here today can sigh in grateful relief that that particular suggestion didn't find itself into our church constitutions and become a prerequisite for church membership. But it's proposed there. Zeal for the law. If the Gentiles become Christians, they must obey the law of Moses. So the accusation that is made against Peter was that he went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, it wasn't so much that he had preached to them but that he had eaten with them. Compare this accusation with what the religious leaders had said about Jesus some months before. In Mark 2 and 16, when the teachers of the law 
who were Pharisees, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And again in Luke 15 and 2, but when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. But you know, at least the people that Jesus ate with were Jewish sinners, and they were eating kosher food. But Peter had gone further, too far for some. He had eaten with Gentiles, and he had consumed unclean food. So when we realize that, we begin to get that greater significance of the purpose of the vision in Acts 10, verses 6 through 16, when the sheet is lowered down from heaven, and and the divine voice says, Peter, of all of these unclean animals, don't call any of them unclean that which God has made. So take and kill and eat any of them. You see, the thing's changing. In the whole economy of God's revelation, the thing is changing for the whole of the world. I've got another question for you. What's one of the most important marks of fellowship and importance in the New Testament? Some people here today will go home and say, you know, we had a great service at Charlotte Chapel this morning. It was great fellowship. Uh, other people can go to a conference, or some of you will go to Keswick in the ensuing weeks, and you'll have great fellowship there. But you won't actually have taken part in what the New Testament says is the, the mark, one of the hallmarks of true Christian fellowship. It's food, food, and more food. Whenever the New Testament Christians are having fellowship, it's with food. Food and fellowship go together like a horse and courage. That wasn't in my notes, you realize, <laughs> very obviously. But you see, if ever there was potential to erect a wall of division, this is it. And left to man to sort out, to convene a committee and subgroups to get to the place of, of, of an understanding of this, I think there would be a serious split in the church. And of course, we're not just talking about denominations, but we would be talking about the formation of two separate churches. A Jewish church and a Gentile church. Well, actually, you know, there are some very misinformed they call themselves Christians around today who still believe that that is true anyhow. That somehow there is a church to rise out of the place called Israel or Palestine that is different in essence from the church that is the body of Christ here on earth today. And nowhere in the Bible can you support such a tradition. There is one church made up of Jewish and Gentile believers in all times and days and generations. In the past, in the present, and in the future. Everyone who reads the Bible and understands it knows there is only one church, the new body of Christ on earth. But you'd need to know it, wouldn't you? In the World Christian Encyclopedia published by Oxford University Press, David Barrett identifies 10,000 distinct religions in the world today who all claim to know God. 10,000 different religions. And 150 of these religions have 1 million or more followers. But you know, within Protestant, post-Reformation Christianity, Barrett, and the figures are seven years out of date now, but he counts 33,820 denominations. 
shocking. That number is probably more like 40,000 evangelical denominations. Please bear in mind that probably each of these 40,000 denominations started when a group of Christians raised an accusation of one sort or another against a group of fellow believers. So that's the Jewish accusation. In verses 4 through 17, we see the apostles' answer. Faced with this potential split in the early church and the real threat that the spreading flame could have been extinguished, what did Peter do? Well, he simply reports the incident as an eyewitness report to the church in Jerusalem and Judea. Notice that he takes six other independent and reliable witnesses along with him. William Barclay suggests that the number may be significant since... Roman legal customs of the time required seven seals to authenticate important documents. So Peter begins his uh, personal testimony in verses 4 through 14. He simply recounted the events of chapter 10 as they happened. As I say, refer to Peter's sermon last Sunday evening for all the detail of that. But in summary, uh, Peter describes it thus. In verses 5 through 7, uh, he says where he was and what he experienced, his location, and what he experienced. He gives a brief description of what happened, including the vision. Uh, In verses 8 through 10, uh, his immediate reaction and his initial reluctance. He wasn't at all impressed with the challenge, and he's actually honest enough to admit it. And then, verses 11 through 14, he he talks about his obedience to God's will and his subsequent visit to Cornelius' home. But he doesn't leave it there with his own testimony. He attributes his actions to, uh, and the subsequent experience that Cornelius had, to the Holy Spirit's leading in verses 15 and 16. Now Peter clearly links the Lord's prediction himself, back in Acts 1, 4 and 5, that he would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now I don't believe that Pentecost was the fulfillment of that promise in conclusion. Let me explain why. Notice that Peter pointedly says here that as he spoke, as he preached the good news, the Holy Spirit came on them, the Gentiles, as he had come on us at the beginning. So Pentecost in and of itself isn't the conclusion of the Spirit's coming, It's actually the beginning of the Spirit's coming in power. Now, the church age, the age in which you and I live, is the age of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh in fulfillment of what we see in Joel's prophecy and elsewhere. That began at Pentecost, and it still continues today. I'm going to make a bold statement here for maybe this church tradition. He who is God the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, is as available to us today as he was when he came on Cornelius and his household. And in my heart, I can say amen to that. And some of you can. And some of you must. Because this is the day that God has made for us to believe that his power is still available to us. Now, isn't it amazing that more division and schism is caused by 
Christians' reactions to the one, i.e. the Holy Spirit, who is sent by God to unite believers and to empower them to be as witnesses than any other issue. Of these 40,000 denominations, and I haven't checked, but I can almost guarantee that the reason that most of them split away from wherever they began had something to do with the Holy Spirit. Well, of course it didn't. (laughs) Because the Holy Spirit unites and empowers and glorifies Jesus in everything that he does. But boy, do we know that the way that some people respond to his activity and his ministry is anything but Christ-glorifying, is anything but uniting, and is anything but empowering to witness to the gospel message going forth with liberty and freedom and in boldness and with effect. But how can we be sure that it was the leading of the Holy Spirit? Remember, the Apostle Peter has already had uh, something of that, that same um, schoolmaster rebuke feeling uh, at Caesarea Philippi, another Caesarea further inland, a place in modern Israel called Bania Springs. Um, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, Who do men say that I am? And they fire all sorts of answers. And he said, okay, that's what the crowds think about me. You twelve who are with me just now and, and uh, called to be with me, to follow me closely. Who do you say I am? And Peter gets right in there and he says, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, mark the three different ways from which you and I can get leading, I believe even still today. Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. So that's the first place that you and I can be inspired in our own flesh and in our own blood. But he says, but heaven revealed this to you. That's a good source of enlightenment. And then just about five minutes later, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Three sources of enlightenment for the human being. Our own flesh, heaven itself, the Holy Spirit, or the enemy of Christ. So how can we be sure? Well, Peter makes his final appeal to the highest authority available. It's there in verse 17. It's the authority of God's word. Peter's ultimate argument does not rest on what he did, but rather on what God did. And maybe even more importantly, on what God said. It may well be your testimony. You may even attribute your actions and your behavior to being Holy Spirit guided, but if it does not concur with the revealed plans, purposes, and principles of God's Word, then it isn't authentically Spirit-led. The Holy Spirit will never lead any of us into any experience that is contrary to what God has revealed in His Word. Notice that that Peter remembered what Jesus had said. How did he remember? Well, if you check out in John 14 and 16, where Jesus talks about the one that he will send as the paraclete, as the other comforter, the other one like himself who will come into the world, one of the primary parts of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to teach us to remember what Jesus taught us. That's what's happening here. It's Holy Spirit and human interaction. Peter remembers. It's the Holy Spirit's ministry to remind Peter that Jesus has already said this. 
So Peter simply and very humbly concludes in Acts 11.17 that if God gave them, i.e. the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And you know, that's really where it comes down kind of for us to acid test us. Do we like Christians to dress a certain way? Do we like Christians to speak a certain way? Do we like Christians to maintain certain standards, academic or otherwise? Are they only truly saved if they become like us? Are we prejudiced in any way? I worked in a church once where I interacted during the week with some guys from kind of the lower strata of society. They were into petty crime and drugs and buckfast and all that kind of thing. Well, you know, I made the mistake of taking two of them to church one day. I did. It was a mistake. Huge mistake. I took these two guys who didn't know how to talk, didn't know how to dress, didn't know when to stand, didn't know when to sit, didn't know what the songs were about, didn't know tiddly about church as we knew it. And it was so embarrassing for them and for us. A couple of weeks later, this guy who worked in a bank, very well dressed, came in a suit and a tie, walked into the same church, sat down, was made welcome, very welcome. And one of the deacons came to me afterwards and said, now that's the sort of person we want to see come to our church. Hold me back. But are you prejudiced? What if somebody was sitting down in the front hero here with tattoos and piercings and a great big whack and mohican even though they're out of style these days? But giving God the glory because they've just been saved, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it? Well, would it? Would it? Come on, be honest. Are we prejudiced? Well, in verse 18, we come to the final part of the sermon. And it's the divine acquittal. You see, as Peter had done earlier, so too the church members in Jerusalem recognized that it was God who granted the Gentiles the gift of repentance unto eternal life. And when they realized that, they praised God. Now please note that whether for Jews or Gentiles, middle class or otherwise, for you or I, repentance is a gift. It is not a right, nor is it something that we can do in our own strength. It is nothing short of a divine work of the sovereign God orchestrating and performing by the Holy Spirit the work of salvation. And wherever... Wherever there is a genuine work of the Holy Spirit, there is, as here, normally two significant results. Firstly, there is the kind of preservation of unity among true believers in the body of Christ. We're told that the critics had no further objections. Literally translated, became or were quiet. Wow! Wouldn't we love to see the Holy Spirit come on some of our church meetings? <laughs> Maybe particularly ones in the past. 
where things were said in a very, very ungodly, ungracious way. But God the Holy Spirit comes and convinces the critics that they should just be quiet. And they give God the glory in response to the Gentiles' genuine faith. You know, there's that lovely picture in, in the oldest book of the Bible, in the book of Job, where for 38 chapters, Job and his so-called comforters are just giving it back and forth, big time in dialogue, one with another. I think the reason why you're like this is, and I think the reason, and I think, and I think, and I think, and, and everybody knows, and, and because of, back and forth for 38 tedious chapters. Then God speaks. Job and his pals do the only thing that any of us should do when God speaks. Listen. Listen. That's what happened here. See, God has done a work. And those that criticized it have come to realize that they were wrong. That's the first thing. Secondly, I recognize that when the Spirit moves, that the obsolete traditions, even those that had their roots in what God had done in the past, are consigned to the annals of history. You see, at this stage in the Judeo-Christian record, a gulf begins to emerge where the worship that centered on the temple and the worship that combined with the proclamation of the living word of God that knows no political, cultural, or ethnic barriers goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the world, to the very ends of the age. Sometimes, even as good Baptists, we can fall into the traditional trap of kind of believing that ministry only takes place in a certain place and in a certain way. But whenever there's a genuine move of the Spirit, that which was a good tradition at one stage, maybe as David said to the children, something that was 50 years ago was relevant then, may be completely irrelevant now. And if we're not prejudiced, we let it go in favor of a new way of communicating the same old truths that still bring life and health and faith to believers in our day and generation. So in conclusion, the flame still spreads. We need to ensure that we don't hinder the work God is doing by erecting walls that keep us apart and separate from true followers of Jesus. Paraphrasing from what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia, God still sets open doors before those who, despite their little strength, keep his word and do not deny his name. So as we finally, finally close, can I ask you two questions? Firstly, does a wall of hostility still exist between you and the living God? Because you've not accepted his gift of repentance and turned to him asking forgiveness for your sin. When you do do that you will receive the same gift of the same Holy Spirit because he's still available to you and indeed to all who believe. Or maybe more pertinent to us here this morning, does a wall of hostility exist between you and a fellow believer? Is there anything you can do today to seek to tear that wall down and allow the free movement of the Holy Spirit to flow again in reviving power? If the answer to either of these questions is yes, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray.